0: God. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet, and yet he still had some pretty tough questions for God. We've seen those questions that can be kind of summed up as follows. Chapter one was, does God really care? Um, he's talking about the, the issue of Judah is sinning and not following God. Chapter two was, is God's justice fair? Because God says he's going to send the evil Babylonians to bring judgment on sinful Judah. And then today is, is how do I trust God in my suffering? Uh, is chapter three. But instead of, of running away from God when Habakkuk had these questions, Habakkuk, he brought his questions to God, and he hammered them out in prayer. And God answered Habakkuk back every time. Now, it wasn't always the answer that Habakkuk expected or even wanted, but God did answer his questions and led him steadily along the journey from doubt to faith. So chapter three here is is a little bit different. It records Habakkuk's closing prayer in his journey. There's no complaint that he actually says out loud, but I think there's an implied complaint in that God, like, where is God? God is not there, so how do I trust God in the midst of suffering? But this time, instead of asking God to answer his complaint, as, as he's done before, Habakkuk, he answers it himself as he reflects on God's works and wonders for Israel over the centuries. And though this time of prayer, through this time of prayer and reflection, Habakkuk finally comes to a place of hope and confidence in God that allows him to praise God with rejoicing, even as he anticipates the most difficult of circumstances. The, the question, is God there, it is probably the most basic of all questions that people ask about God. It's also the most basic level of faith. Uh, in Hebrews eleven six, I don't know if this thing's going to work. Hey, got it, cool. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, it says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And yet, there's another way we can ask the question, is God there, that, that goes beyond the question of, of just God's existence. Does God actually exist? Uh, Habakkuk certainly didn't doubt God's existence, but he wondered about God's presence, which is different. God, are you there? Do you know what I'm going through? Are you there to help me through this time of difficulty? I, I desperately need your presence. God, how do I trust you in the midst of this suffering? That's what Habakkuk was struggling with. And in chapter 3, we find really a remarkable prayer where Habakkuk basically answers the question for himself and becomes the person of, of Habakkuk 2.4. It's probably the most famous verse in the book of Habakkuk. Of He's a man living by faith, which is credited to him as righteousness. So how can you be assured of God's presence in the midst of suffering? Well, let's look at chapter 3 together, see what we can learn from Habakkuk's prayer. I'm going to read all of chapter 3 to start, and then we'll, we'll break it down, verses 1 through 19. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigianoth, or Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. We think that means like pause, reflect. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting waves. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and mood stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, Again, Habakkuk's really easy to understand. I'm sure you guys understood all these, these poetic imagery things. So this will be like nothing you haven't heard before. But I'll still break it down for us to make sure we, we understand what's happening here. I think it's interesting and important to point out that the chapter starts with Habakkuk worshiping God. Uh, verse 1 provides a title for the whole chapter. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianat, or enough." I'm not even sure if... if Josh Matthews tried to help me with pronunciation, and I still don't totally have it. What this is, chapter 3 is a prayer from Habakkuk to God. But when I talk to God in prayer, you probably do this too, I usually just talk to him. I don't craft words or plan out long speeches any more than I do when I'm talking with a friend or a neighbor. But Habakkuk, chapter 3, is a little different. We're not sure exactly what the word shigginot means at the end of verse 1, but it seems to be some kind of musical term. We only ever see the word in some of the Psalms, and even then, it only appears a couple times. The word Selah that I read uh, is another word we don't totally know the meaning of. It's often seen in the Psalms and is believed to mean, like, take a moment of reflection, pause of what you've just heard, or it might mean prepare for what you are about to hear. The chapter closes with instructions for the director of music and and speaks about using string instruments. So Habakkuk 3, it's not only a prayer— it's a psalm. It's a worship song. Uh, Habakkuk is writing something for the people of Judah to remember God and sing of who he is during the coming captivity of the Babylonians. Notice uh, how Habakkuk begins the actual prayer in verse 2. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's beginning with, with worship here. I think too often we just rush into prayer with our requests is is how we start things off. This was part of Habakkuk's problem earlier. His earlier prayers were all complaints or questions to God. And now we've already seen that there's nothing wrong with bringing your questions and complaints to God. God wants you to honestly talk with him. But if you want to know God's presence, you must begin with worship. Understand who he is and giving him praise for that. Secondly, if you want to be assured of God's presence, we need to remember God's uh, mighty deeds of the past. And this is what takes up the bulk of Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3. At its heart, Habakkuk's psalm is a song that describes God's awesomeness and deeds. It's really like a greatest hits of the Old Testament is what Habakkuk's doing here. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. God tells Moses in Exodus thirty three twenty, no one may see me and live. Here's why I say these. These verses are describing what's called a theophany. A theophany is a word that literally means an appearance of God. So of course, God cannot actually be seen with the human eyes, as these verses say. Uh, God is too great. He's too powerful, too majestic, too holy. I always have interpreted in a funny way, Exodus 33, 20, no one can see me and live. It's like, Indiana Jones and, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You open the Ark of the Covenant, you see God's presence, your face is going to melt. All right? It's just, it's just what happens, guys. It's in the movie. Uh, you got to close your eyes, and Indiana Jones and Marion survive. But you can't see God for who he really is. He's unapproachable. He's just too amazing for us. So in a theophany, people do not actually see God, but they see visible markers of his presence. On Mount Sinai, when God gave the Ten Commandments... There was thunder and lightning and fire and thick smoke and a great earthquake and the sound of this trumpet getting louder and louder and louder. The people of Israel did not actually see God that day, but I can guarantee you no one was asking, is God here? Like, no, it was clear that God was there at Mount Sinai as they're receiving the Ten Commandments. So Habakkuk 3 presents uh, a remarkable theophany of God in highly visual and poetic language. But unlike Mount Sinai, which was an actual theophany that took place at an event in history, Habakkuk's psalm uses the language of theophany to proclaim to the people of Israel that yes, God is indeed there, even in the coming trials, just as he always has been. And Habakkuk does this by remembering God's mighty deeds of the past. So as Habakkuk reflects on God's deeds in the past, he emphasizes I think two points in particular. First of all, God conquers all enemies in his path. On one level, this this psalm is a picture of God coming with great power and might, destroying the enemies that stand against him. This psalm is full of imagery from the surrounding nations at that time. See, the nations then, they, they tended to associate their gods with various aspects of nature. So God comes striding up from the desert in the south, he conquers all the forces of nature, and he causes them to do his bidding. He, Habakkuk's basically saying, this is God, your gods are nothing. God's visible appearance is pictured as, as this great thunderstorm. Uh, I, I was in New Orleans a couple of weeks after Hurricane Katrina happened. I, I went for disaster relief for about 10 days, and we were staying at this local church, and one night we decided, I, I still, I don't know why we decided this, we decided, let's sleep outside tonight. And there was this massive tent. It probably covered like, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 square feet. It was like this huge banquet tent. We're like, we'll sleep under this. It's going to be great. What an experience. Well, like 1.30, 2.30 in the morning, man, that was a storm like I've never even seen before. It was so loud, so much lightning, wettest thunderstorm I've ever seen. This tent was, I don't know, 40, 50 feet tall. And instead of going straight down, it was like curving because of just all of the water that was gushing from the sky onto this thing about to bring this tent down. One of the guys we went with, how I found out this was happening is he just was going, just laughing at the ridiculousness of like, wow, we're going to get crushed by this tent. So uh, we got up and we went inside and slept the rest of the night. But I can't imagine being in a more terrifying storm in my life. If you've ever been in a truly powerful thunderstorm, then you know that this is a meaningful picture of God's awesome power and majesty. Uh, so let, let's continue to walk through these verses and help unpack some of the imagery that Habakkuk uses here. Look at verses three and four. It says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. So Temin was in the region Uh, to the south of Israel in the country of Edom. And Mount Paran was located in the wilderness area between Edom and and Mount Sinai. And so God's coming is compared to a thunderstorm approaching Israel from the south. It's coming up. His brightness lights up the sky. Rays of lightning flash from his hands as from the deep thunderclouds. Yet the full extent of God's power remains hidden. It's still veiled in the midst of this. Uh, Verses 5 and 6. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So plague and pestilence are are signs of God's judgment. The the word pestilence also means flame. It it comes from a word meaning to burn. So verse 5 can be translated as, Before him were the flames that burned. And it's a picture of, again, of God's awesome power and holiness as he walks through the land, judging the earth for its sins. The nations tremble before him, and even the mountains and the hills crumble and collapse in his presence. When it says that the hills sank low, that literally means to bow down. So there's this sense of God's creation bowing down in worship before him. The mountains, they might be ancient. The hills may have stood since ages long past, but God's ways are eternal. And so they all fall down before him. Uh, Verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So here, this is just a short picture. Uh, Habakkuk pictures the Cushion and Midianite people who live in tents in the desert, trembling at God's appearance as he passes them in the wilderness. Verses 8 and 9. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. So in, in verses 8 and 9, Habakkuk describes God's conquest over the rivers and the sea. Uh, there are, are three different words for, for God's anger in these verses. There's anger, wrath and indignation, or some translations say rage. The, the word for anger means, again, hot or burning. Uh, the word for wrath means breath or nostrils. This is like, you know, like really flaring your nostrils when you get upset. Like, I'm sure some of you husbands have seen your, you didn't take the garbage out? I've gotten that from Taylor a couple of times. Sorry, I'll take garbage out before bed tonight, I promise. Um, the word uh, indignation or rage means to pour out or overflow And so taken together, they speak of God's burning anger, something we normally don't like to talk about about God. The fierce blast of breath from his nostrils, his overflowing judgment poured out on his enemies because of their sin. Uh, Going forward in verses 10 through 12, or excuse me, 9 through 12. We'll look at 9 again, uh, bottom part of 9. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in rye. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear you marched through the earth in fury you threshed the nations in anger so that the fierce wind and earthquake are followed by this downpour water floods the earth as in the days of, knowing, uh, of noah splitting the earth with rivers it says that the seas lifts its waves on high it literally lifts its hands on high so This is more uh, flood imagery that could be a sign of submission and praise to the Lord. Even the sun and moon stand still in fear of God's awesome power. The flying arrows and flashing spear are more poetic references to lightning. God striding through the earth is perhaps another reference to thunder, if it's just coming. Also, and so the forces of nature, the mountains, the rivers and the streams, the sea, the sun and moon, they all acknowledge God as Lord as he strides through the earth and threshes the nations in judgment. And then verses 13 through 15 says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." Uh, from neck to thigh, or from thigh to neck, in verse 13, could also be read from neck to tail. So this is picturing God's conquest of the nations as, as in totality, that it, it's, it's done, it's over. Uh, finally, verse 15 says that God tramples the sea. In the Bible, the sea is a symbol of all the evil forces in the world that stand opposed to God. So Habakkuk wants us to understand that, yes, God is there, and God conquers all his enemies. This is a word of warning. But there's actually two things happening here in this passage. Habakkuk also wants us to understand that God comes to deliver his people. That is a word of comfort. So on one level, verses 3 through 15 give us this dramatic picture of God coming up from the south and completely destroying all the enemies in his path. But on another level, this song is also full of imagery relating to God's dealing with his people, Israel. It is often the case that when we see God's judgment in scripture, it's because we're seeing deliverance right beside it. What Habakkuk is remembering is how God has conquered his enemies, but more importantly, how God has delivered and saved his people. So let's quickly look at this again. Temin and Perrin in verse 3. This reminds us of God's presence with his people in the wilderness, where he first revealed himself to Israel and then led them to the promised land. The thunderstorm and earthquake imagery, are a reminder of God meeting with his people at Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments. I talked about that earlier. In fact, the word ray used in verse four to describe light from God's hand is only used one other time in the Old Testament when it's describing the rays of light coming off of Moses' face when he had been speaking with God in the tent of meeting. What did he have to do after that? He had to veil his face because it was so much light coming off of him. Plague and pestilence recalls God's 10 plagues on Egypt, resulting in Israel's deliverance from Egypt. The victory over the rivers and the sea are meant to remind us of uh, Israel's miraculous crossings of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. The sun and moon standing still are meant to remind us of Joshua's victory over the Amorites that we see in Joshua chapter 10 during the conquest. Piercing the head of the enemy with his own spear reminds us of David cutting off the head of Goliath with his own sword. Verse 13 speaks of God coming to deliver his people and to save his anointed one. Well, the anointed one in the Hebrew language is literally the Messiah, the son of David, who would come to deliver God's people for good, Jesus. And at the end of verse 13, where it says the head of the wicked will be crushed, it's a reference to Genesis 3.15, that the serpent's head, Satan, will be crushed by the son of man, Jesus. And so throughout this poem, Again, we see these greatest hits playing out. Habakkuk has expertly used imagery that not only details the defeat of God's enemies, but also recalls God's great saving acts for his people. Their deliverance from Egypt, the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, their wandering in the wilderness and eventual conquest of the Promised Land. David, the anointed king, and the coming of the Messiah who would bring salvation for all of his people. So when you're wondering, is God there, when you're in the midst of struggles, how can you be assured of God's presence? Well, remember God's mighty deeds of the past. You can remember what he's done throughout scripture as Habakkuk does here. You you also remember how he's been at work in your life or in the friends of people that you know. God conquers all enemies in his path. God comes to deliver his people. God has always been there and always will be there for his people. And this all leads us to Habakkuk's response to God. Throughout the the series, we've been tracing Habakkuk's own personal journey from a place of of questioning, doubt, and confusion at the beginning of the book to what we see now as a place of faith, hope, and confidence by the end of the book. Uh, One pastor said it like this, the book of Habakkuk begins with a question mark and closes with an exclamation point. I, I just think that's an incredible description of this book. And I think you'll agree it's a a fitting description uh, as we read the end here. In this closing passage, Habakkuk makes one of the most powerful statements of faith you will find in all of scripture. This statement makes a a powerful climax to the whole book. And in many ways, I think we saved the best for last with these verses. This is why I love this book so much. We live in a day and age where the best-selling Christian books seem to be the ones that They tell you how to prosper, succeed, live the good life. I would guess that most of us would probably find it easy to exercise faith in God when we're prospering and life is going well and according to our own plans. But the book of Habakkuk challenges us to put our faith in God even during the worst of times. When Habakkuk reached the end of his journey, he'd, he'd move from this place of questioning God to a place of trusting God no matter what. And that no matter what was a serious issue for Habakkuk far more serious than most of the issues that we deal with on a daily basis. God revealed to Habakkuk that his country was going to be invaded, pillaged, and ransacked. Habakkuk and his people would lose everything that they had built up over the years, everything they had worked for. It's all going to be gone. That's a whole different matter than trusting God, even though you got a traffic ticket on your way to church this morning. Anybody get a traffic ticket? Okay, good, good job, guys. Or you had a bad day at work or bad day at school or things aren't going well at home. It's not that those things aren't bad, but his entire nation is about to be conquered by some pretty evil people. Uh, let's put the question in the same terms that Habakkuk faced. If the United States was invaded and conquered by a foreign power in your lifetime, how would that affect your faith in God? Is your faith strong enough to stand up to that kind of a trial? Could you still rejoice in the Lord if you lost everything, your job, your home, your family? Is your faith strong enough to trust God no matter what? This is the place to which the book of Habakkuk brings us at the end of chapter 3. How do you exercise faith in God during the worst of times? Habakkuk shares with us three things that he did, even when he was facing the worst disaster of his lifetime. So let's look at these, these closing verses together and see what we can learn for the strengthening of our faith through trusting God. The first thing you can do is wait patiently for God, even when you're afraid. Let's look, look at verse 16. Habakkuk writes, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. God has told Habakkuk about the coming invasion by the Babylonians. God has described them uh, in, in chapters 1 and 2 as arrogant, violent, th- the cruelty of these invaders and in chilling detail. And God also told Habakkuk about the great and awesome judgment that he's going to bring on Babylon and upon all the nations of earth that refuse to submit to God. But Habakkuk is still terrified At what is about to take place, he's afraid. His heart is pounding in his chest. His lips quiver. He feels physically weak and is hardly able to stand. Habakkuk wasn't just dealing with the possibility of an attack on his country, he's dealing with the certainty of an attack on his country. He was deathly afraid, and his fear affected him on a deep and even physical level. How do you deal with extreme fear? What do you do when, when fear grips you in such a way that your heart is pounding, that your legs start to give way? Do you try positive thinking, deep breaths for 10 seconds, scream into a pillow? Just try and push it out of your mind? How, can you, how do you exercise faith in God during the worst of times? Well, Habakkuk says to, to wait patiently for God, even when you are afraid. Look at the second half of verse 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. God told Habakkuk that the Babylonians are going to invade. There's, there's no stopping that. This is going to happen. But God also assured Habakkuk that he would judge the Babylonians for their sin and he would ultimately deliver his people. But before that judgment could happen, the invasion had to happen. So he patiently, when he says he's patiently waiting uh, for trouble to come upon those who invade us, what he's saying is, I'm waiting for them to invade us. So then they can be judged afters. The invasion has to come first. And so in the midst of his fears, Habakkuk chose to quietly wait for God. The phrase uh, quietly wait, it comes from a Hebrew word meaning to rest or to settle down and remain. Uh, It's the same word we find in the Ten Commandments when God tells us to take a Sabbath. It's uh, the same word we find in the narratives about the promised land where God promises to give the Israelites rest from their enemies in the land. Here, Habakkuk determines to wait patiently during this time of trial to rest himself in the Lord. And remember, he's quietly waiting for his people to be pillaged and captured by the most powerful nation on earth. How many of you guys say, bring it on, God. Whatever's coming my way, let's do this. No worries. I'll wait because I'm resting in you. I'm guessing most of us try to spend our time planning and spend our energy doing whatever we can to not let trials come our way. Yet here is Habakkuk, who was flabbergasted back in chapter 1 at hearing that the Babylonians were God's tool for judgment, now saying, I'll wait for them to get here. Even though I'm terrified, let's go. Bring them. Whenever it's going to happen, let let it happen. God promises to give us his peace when we give our worries and fears to him. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, as it does for Habakkuk here, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do you exercise faith during the worst of times? Habakkuk would say, wait patiently for the Lord, even when you're afraid. Rest yourself in God. The second thing you can do is to choose to rejoice in God, even when everything in life goes wrong. Uh, Look at verses 17 through 18. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. These verses represent one of the strongest expressions of faith that you're going to find in the whole Bible. As Habakkuk determines to rejoice in God, even when everything else in life goes wrong. Uh, Habakkuk paints three scenarios here. Each scenario contains a a matching couplet of images. The first scenario is this. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. So the blossoms of the fig tree, the grapes forming on the vine, refer to those things that you're trusting in for the future. They are symbol of hopes to come. It's just a blossom. It's just a flower. There's not yet a tangible sign that figs and grapes are coming. But in this scenario, there's no signs of a future. The fig tree does not bud. There are no grapes on the vine. There's no visible sign that these things will ever come to be. Do you have hopes and dreams for the future, but no visible signs that they're ever going to come to fruition? You ever feel like, God, just give me some sort of a little sign, some type of hope that things are going to change, something to hold on to? Then you know how Habakkuk felt. And Habakkuk would tell you, when you have nothing to hold on to for the future hold on to God and that will be enough. Habakkuk says, trust God no matter what. Though I have no visible sign of hope for the future, nothing tangible that I can see or touch or grasp, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. A second scenario is this, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, so the olive crop in the field refers to those things which you are trusting in the present. They're a symbol of your present means. But in this scenario, what you are trusting lets you down. The olive crop fails. The fields produce no food. They disappoint you. In fact, the word fails in Hebrew is a word that means to deceive, to disappoint. So the idea is this. You've planted and cultivated the fields. You've worked the land, tended the crops. And now it's finally time for the harvest. And the crops fail. There's nothing. The field produces no food. It was all a deception all that work, all that effort, it all comes to nothing. You get laid off from a company you've been at for decades. You lose your job, you have no current source of income. You go to all the doctor's appointments, take all the medicines, get all the surgeries, but the sickness won't go away. You put years into a relationship with another person, and now the relationship breaks apart. What do you do when all that you are counting on in the present suddenly comes crumbling down? What do you do when you suffer disappointments in life. Habakkuk says, trust God no matter what. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The third scenario is this, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. So the sheep and cattle refer to trusting things from the past. They're a symbol of your reserves. But in this scenario, you have no reserves to fall back on. There are no sheep in the pen. There are no cattle in the stalls, or to put it in today's terms, there's no money in the bank. There's no more equity in the house. Your friends and family have helped you all you can. Your credit cards are maxed out. Your physical strength is tapped. Your reserves are all used up. So what do you do when you have nothing to fall back on? Habakkuk would tell you, fall back on God and he will hold you up. Though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I Will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. It's easy to trust God when the fig tree is budding and there's grapes on the vines, when the olive crop succeeds and the fields are producing food, when you have sheep and cattle in the reserve. But are you really trusting God at those times? Or are you trusting in the things that that you already have? Uh, Think about Job. I think Job goes along with Habakkuk really well. This is exactly the question Satan asked God about Job. Does Job trust you because he trusts you or because you have your hand of blessing on him? Well, Job showed his true colors when God removed the blessing and Job continued to trust him no matter what. Habakkuk challenges us with the same question. Do you really trust God or do you only trust him when you know his blessings are on your life? Here's another way of phrasing the question. This is a tough one. Which would make you feel more financially secure? Having a million dollars in the bank right now. I'd take that. Or having a God who promises to meet your daily needs. Stop and think about it for a minute. Be be, be honest. If the answer is a million dollars in the bank, I don't totally blame you, well, then you're not really trusting God. Well, why do I say that? Well, that million dollars could be gone tomorrow. But the answer, if the answer is having a God who promises to just meet your daily needs, then no matter what your situation, you can feel more secure than the person who has that million dollars in the bank. That's trusting God no matter what. Habakkuk determined to rejoice in God despite visible circumstances, even if you do not see any visible signs of God's presence or favor. Uh, F.F. Bruce writes, it is right and proper to voice appreciation of God's goodness when he bestows all that is necessary for life, health, and prosperity. But when these things are lacking, to rejoice in God for his own sake is evidence of pure faith. I love that quote. That's a great quote. Habakkuk says, though you have no visible hope for the future, and what you are trusting in the present has let you down, and you have no reserves from the the, the past to fall back on, still rejoice in the Lord." Be joyful in God. Why? Because he is God, your Savior who will deliver you in his time and will not let the righteous fall. So how do you exercise faith during the worst of times? Choose to rejoice in God when everything in life goes wrong. And the third thing you can do is find strength in God to scale the heights when you are down. Uh, this is verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk had learned to find his strength in God, not in his own resources or ability. Habakkuk is about to go through some rough times. The thought of it scared him so much that his heart pounded and his legs trembled beneath him. Yet as he rejoiced in God in the midst of difficult circumstances, he found new strength from God to deal with this trial ahead. So what is this strength like that God gives you? Well, Habakkuk says, uh, God makes my feet like that of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So Habakkuk, he paints a picture of a deer running on the heights of the mountain, steady and sure-footed, un- uninhibited, unafraid, full of freedom and confident as it scales the heights. Um, have you guys ever heard of the Ibex goat? They're on You should watch the Planet Earth episode that has them. This is an Ibex goat. So these things, I, I'm guessing Habakkuk didn't know what an ibex was, or he would have used that instead of deer. Uh, these things can virtually crawl on vertical walls, and they, they just, like, scamper right up them. Like, it's nothing. If you Google ibex goats, you'll be like, what am I even looking at right now? They're doing these with hooves. They don't have opposable thumbs. They're not great climbers, but it's just, it's just how they're created. It's their ability. These incredible creatures can scale what looks to be impossible, and they do it with confidence and without fear, because they trust in their ability. Now, Habakkuk and you and I, I don't think we trust in our ability to handle anything that's thrown our way, but we can trust in the strength of the Lord. He gives us strength and we are trembling. He's still there in the midst of our suffering. He provides sure footing when it seems like our world is crashing around us, or we're about to slide off the side of a mountain. How are, how are they doing that? That's insane. It looks like he's using his tongue as a third point on the top there. Um, the first week that I, I preached on Habakkuk, I shared a, a story uh, about a time when, when I questioned God the wrong way, when I accused God, when I got angry at God, and when I stopped trusting him. I got mad at God for allowing uh, my grandfather, who was a faithful man of God, who had uh, been a minister of the gospel for the decades, to die a long, painful death to prostate cancer. And God used that situation to bring my cousin Kyle to faith in him, and then it changed my perspective on God. So flash forward to two years after my my grandfather passes, and my mom calls me when I'm at college. Uh, I can still remember everything about where I was, where I was sitting in my room. I don't remember what I was wearing, but, like, I I totally remember where I was sitting. And uh, my mom called me and told me that she'd been diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer at way too young of an age. Uh, In the midst of that phone call, even though I was worried and and I was scared at the news, I, I did what Habakkuk did. I remembered I looked back on who God is, and I remembered that even though I lost my pappy, my cousin came to salvation. So my response to that phone call was, I kid you not, I told my mom, it's okay, everything's going to be all right. How was I able to do that? Did I know that my mom would be cancer-free after surgery and treatments for over 10 years now, which, praise the Lord, she is? No, I had no idea. But what I did know is everything would be okay because we were going to trust God in this situation. He would still be God even if my mom had passed or if she survived to take my daughter to church with her in Vancouver this morning. That's where Olivia is this morning. She's not in trouble for punching me. I'm joyful that my mom's alive. I'm joyful that she's cancer-free. But I think, I hope, that if she hadn't made it, I'd still be up here joyful today because God the Lord is my strength. And the real joy he's given, that surpasses any joy that I could have about my mom being okay today, is that as Habakkuk prayed in in chapter 3 verse 2, in wrath, God remembered mercy. God did that when dealing with the sin of Judah in Habakkuk's time, and much, much more importantly, when God poured his wrath out on the Messiah the anointed one, Jesus Christ, so that we all could receive mercy. Jesus took the punishment, the wrath of God that we all deserve for our sins, so that instead of receiving wrath, we can accept his mercy by walking in faith. Habakkuk didn't have that truth yet when he wrote this book. We do. Live in the truth, in the promise, in the hope of the mercy and new life that comes through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. When sorrows come our way, when circumstances are out of control, when the pain is all too present, remember that there is something that gives this life true meaning and purpose and a confidence to hold on to that one day when we are with God, there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more death, but only abundant life and everlasting joy. Tim Keller has a great quote. He says, the sorrow makes the joy that much greater. Don't forget that in times of struggle. Put your trust in the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we wrap up Habakkuk here and uh, learn the lessons from uh, this man of God, I pray that we'd apply these things to our lives, that uh, we wouldn't be afraid to come to you with questions of just trying to understand you and your ways and your plan, but that we wouldn't do it in the wrong way. We wouldn't come at you angry or accusatory, but understand that you are so far greater and magnificent and awesome that you are doing things that we couldn't even imagine. And I pray in those times when when trouble comes our way, when we lose loved ones, when we lose jobs, when friendships break apart, when marriages break apart, whatever it is, God, of things that are, are are just bearing down on us, we wouldn't forget that you're there, that you care, that you've always been there, that we'd remember the great things that you've done. We remember that all your promises are yes and amen. God, I I pray that if there's people in this room that are are struggling right now, that they are hurting, that they are in pain, that there is just something that they're wondering, why are you allowing this to happen? Where are you, God? What are you going to do about it? Help them to still find joy in you, that because of salvation coming through you, they can handle anything that's thrown their way in this life. God, I pray you help us as a church family to encourage and build one another up to be support system for each other. Uh, I specifically, man, I was thinking about the Reyes and Campbells a lot this week with this sermon. I pray that their faith would just become a beacon of light to all people around them as they continue to love you and trust in you, even in the midst of of this terrible tragedy of losing Boaz. Help us uh, to come around them. Help us to love them. Help us to just be there for other people. And God, most of all, I just want to thank you for sparing us from your wrath, for remembering mercy, for allowing us the opportunity to have a relationship with you instead of receiving the judgment and punishment that we deserve. I pray that all of us would not forget that truth, that it would uh, just, the gospel just wrap itself around us daily. Uh, it was something we'd never take for granted. It's something that we would live by as we seek to love you and love others. I praise thanks, through Jesus' name. Amen.